This is Sistrionics. And a podcast where we discuss the best super glue to use when gluing yourself to a bank. And is there any good way to tell your boss that you've ducked out of work to stand on top of a commuter train? Well, hello. Good afternoon. It's good to see you. Yeah, it's good to see you, Pip. um, I feel like it's been a little while. I've had a bonanza with you, actually, recently. It's not been a while at all. We've had three meetings. Oh, together. Yes, we have. In uh, in the past week. Did you? Which I've very much needed. Oh, God. You didn't feel like, oh, my God. Not in the slightest. That was enough for her. I feel like now I'm, like, pipped up. Good. I've got my pep talk. Oh, good. Good. It's like a pep talk. A pep talk. Aww. Sweeter. That's nice. (laughs) Oh, stop it. Um, So, good. Well, uh, here we are. Do you know, it is an exciting week to be in Berlin. It is an exciting week to be in Berlin. I feel like it's very special. I feel very honoured to be here as someone who talks constantly about the history of Berlin and Germany. We are recording this in the week of the 30th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall. Woohoo! Of 1989. Special, special time, special time. One of those moments in history which is very much a a win. A win, win, yeah. It's a solid win. It is, for sure. Um, And it's just just a really great... I mean, apart from if you're Vladimir Putin, like, to be fair, he He was was very sad. out. But But I mean, he turned it around. He did turn it around. (laughs) And now he's really happy. He's super happy now. Um, Yeah, I agree. I find it to be... You know, when you're talking about history, when you're talking about big, big moments, big, big moments, global shift, European shift, certainly German or Berlin shift, you're usually talking about death and destruction. Um, And this is one of the cases where you're not talking about that at all you're talking about a moment of genuine relief and togetherness Mm -hmm. of a country for the first time since it's I would argue for the first time since it's founding in 1871 Mm -hmm. absolutely and that was brought about by peaceful resistance civil disobedience and ultimately a a totally non-violent peaceful revolution and i think that's why it feels so win-win in a way because it's not there aren't like masses amount as losers like people who died as a result of some kind of civil war um we're not talking about a mass uprising that costs you know hundreds of thousands of lives if not more we're talking about a totally peaceful uprising and something that was you know done by a process of civil disobedience was really triggered in Poland in the early 1980s mm-hmm. with the Solidarność movement and eventually came to Berlin and to Germany and to East Germany in 1989. Eventually led to, you know, there's 500,000 people on the streets. Yeah. Late October 1989, Wir sind we are the people. We want freedom, freedom of elections, freedom of movement. And eventually they got it on the 9th of November 1989 without a single shot being fired. It doesn't really depend on some dudes in power, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's, I didn't, I admit, I don't know a huge amount about the, the Solidarność uh, movement in Poland, but as you say, it kind of spreads, right? There's multiple, multiple different things mm. that lead up to people feeling like, if I do go out on the streets, I won't, I feel confident enough that I won't be shot. And that's not something that obviously, certainly not something that happened in 1953 with the uprising on the mm-hmm. streets of, of Berlin, um, which ended very violently. Um, Maybe it takes a generation to be born and raised after that point as well to feel like we're in a point where we can like do this now. Yeah. But it takes many, many different things um, to, to lead up to it, I suppose. I love what the Czechs call it. You know, their version of the November Revolution is called the, the Velvet Revolution. Mm. You know, it's got this like lovely characteristic of being so soft yeah. and so sleek. Yeah. Because essentially it, it mirrors the fact that this was a soft, a sleek, a peaceful revolution that ultimately guided... Yeah you know, the Czech, uh, well, Czechoslovakia as it was then yeah. 
into a situation of independence from yeah. their communist ruling party. Yeah. And the fact that, you know, it's just frustrating, isn't it, that we... I feel sometimes we lack imagination more than anything else. For big change to be happening, mm-hmm. there is a presumption that it comes from... Violence. Yeah. 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 If we think about the big changes in history, we think that, you know, the vast majority of history does get affected by violence, right? So in commemoration of what's happening in Berlin at the moment, in celebration of what's happening in Berlin at the moment, the topic that we're bringing you this week is civil disobedience. Oh, yes. Yes. Are you often civilly disobedient? All the time. No, actually, I'm really... It's a lot of jaywalking, littering. Um, So, actually, like, the thing that we're going to be talking about is, like, mass civil disobedience. Gotcha. Right, so... So, have you ever gotten involved in some civil disobedience? I mean, not not specific. I've been very much following civil disobedience movements of late, but not... What about you, Pip? What about you? I... Once got pulled over, going through the tunnel, the Mersey Tunnel. Right. Uh, I didn't. I was driving without my lights on. Right. In my defence. Okay. In my defence. Yes. I I'd been on a night out. Uh, I didn't drink at the time, so I wasn't. Uh, I was entirely sober. Uh, it was about two in the morning, and I was wearing a very short red skirt, and um, got in the car. My car was an old car, and you didn't know that the lights were off. You could tell. You could see like a lot of modern cars. You can't see the 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 gizmos, the, the the bits without turning the lights on. I could see all my bits. <laughs> Started the car in a in a car park with full lights on and my drive to the tunnel was like 30 seconds. Anyone who's driven through the Mersey Tunnel lit up like a Christmas tree 24 hours a day. And I drove through and there was like, and then there was like a police car just behind me and I was like, I'm not going above the speed limit, Mr. Policeman. You can't pull me over for anything. And then they pulled me over and I was like, is there a problem? And he was like, yeah you don't have your lights on. And I was like, oh, yeah. So uh, that is a, I mean, very... Civil disobedience? It is not. Breaking <laughs> the law. Oh, okay. It's breaking the law. Yeah. Um, I didn't have a cause. <laughs> you weren't like trying to bring the lights out of the Mersey Tunnel. We've had enough of your overlit tunnel. Like, destroy the... Right. I want to be. I want to be dangerous. Stop I using that dangerous battery with, with double lighting. The yeah. Um, so civil disobedience tends to talk more to mass movements, right? That are oh, okay. civil disobedient on mass in order to effect a certain change. Okay. So, all right. So not what I did then. Right. So how about you? Um, not really, but I have. As I said, I've been following certain civil disobedient campaigns of late. Um, and very much like seeing where I could fit myself into that situation. But um, civil disobedience at the moment tends to be about occupying bridges for long periods of time mm-hmm. and something Mama Chucks it doesn't have yeah. is time. Yeah. So, um, but then there are very many other ways that you can also yeah. get involved. Um, yes, so I guess like what, what, let's be honest about it, what we're really talking about in this in this episode mm-hmm. and the big example that we're going to be talking about is Extinction Rebellion yeah the case for civil disobedience in the first place mm-hmm. what is civil disobedience mm-hmm. and uh, and why does it work yeah so how is civil disobedience different from other courses of action um, like the case for so oh like sorry the case the for it. environmental stuff so like we're on the brink of ecological disaster oh okay so so yeah taking the example of Extinction Rebellion what is the case 
for civil disobedience. Yeah, because protests haven't worked. Mm. I think that's really the main case for civil disobedience yeah. at this stage. I mean, both of us have been involved in protest movements, I think, for most of our adult lives, really. Mm. I mean, you were saying that you first went on protests in, what, 2011? Mm-hmm. 2012, that's yeah. when I got involved in protesting as well. Um, I think what got me started was the student um, the student protests, student uprising in 2010. And then since then, a lot of environmental protesting. But I mean, look, we've known the science yeah. about yeah. the environmental destruction, the climate crisis. We've known the science now for, for bordering on 50 years. Yeah. And we're still in a situation where, you know, every year it's on average 2.7% increase in emissions, uh, 60% increase since 1990 in emissions of fossil fuels. Um, we are, you know, acidifying the oceans. We're going through mass coral bleaching. The sixth mass extinction of, of, of species is happening right now in nature. 51% of the earth land is now covered by crops, cities and grazing lands rather than forests. Intensive farming and destruction of biodiversity of vast swathes of the earth has led to 30% of arable land, that's farming land, becoming unproductive because of soil erosion. Topsoil is being destroyed 40 times faster than it can be replaced. Four environmental defenders are being killed every single week and the vast majority of those killings are happening in the global south. Extreme events like wind, fires, hurricanes, extreme rainfall are happening at an increased rate, destabilizing whole areas of the world, which sometimes leads to war. Annual rains that were depended on for thousands of years for agricultural and arable production being delayed and sometimes skipping years entirely, leading to mass drought and crop failure. Um, And we can see how this leads to destabilization and perhaps war when we look at the case of Syria which between 2006 to 2011, 60% of Syria suffered the worst long-term drought in its history and crop failures, and two to three million people became poor, internally displaced, leading to instability and catastrophic foundations on which that war was based. And Yemen is currently experiencing a similar situation where 10 million people face mass starvation because partly of crop failures. Island nations like the Maldives are sinking and under extreme threat of extinction, Um, When we consider, for instance, that in the Maldives, the highest point in that collection of islands is six feet above water. So essentially normal politics and the politics of protesting has failed. Um, And just from your own recent experience of of protesting as well, I mean, Mm -hmm. what's your recent experience protesting is slightly different? Yeah, well, we I've been to two of the three big anti-Brexit marches in London, and that felt like it felt like a good thing. It felt like a really good thing. I went with a group of people. I went with um, on a coach down. You know, a lot of people taking taking the time. I took my sixteen-year-old niece. She took a day, you know, to come down with me when she didn't have to because she wanted to. And yeah, it's it's um, I really believe in it. I'm really passionate about it. More than anything else, I'm fucking frustrated that we're talking about fucking Brexit and nonsense when we should be talking about climate change. Absolutely. And that's something um, I know the, you know, the Led by Donkeys guys mm-hmm. that do some really great PR work, really. Do some really, really good um, satirical, like, you know, brilliant PR work. One of these guys was saying, like, my background is in climate activism and I'm really frustrated. He was like, I I feel like we can't get to that stuff until we've sorted out the problem of Brexit because if that goes through, then we're just on the back foot and we are just Singapore on Thames. So, um, 
so yeah, it was it was great and it was a good feeling. It was a good atmosphere. And that was what seven hundred thousand. The first the one. first one was about seven hundred. I think it was about seven hundred thousand. The second one was over over a million. And then this one recently that that um, I was here for, what didn't get to go. That was possibly one point five. One German company put it at two point two million. That was thought to have been maybe a bit too much, but that was what you're kind of dealing with. They yeah. was do they couldn't they couldn't figure out whether it was between one point five or two point two million people on the streets. Of so London. one to two million people on the streets. That's the biggest, that is the biggest march in Mm. history Mm -hmm. in the UK. It's bigger than Iraq was, which was about one million people on the streets. I mean, people often say, you know, protesting doesn't work. Look at Iraq. Yeah, they always Now look at Brexit. And it just feels like marches are not, I mean, mean, what does it say about our political system that it doesn't respond at all to marches? I mean, they had key votes on those days that didn't necessarily reflect the marches outside. I think the people who were listening to those marches are actually the Europeans who mm. aren't giving up on Britain. So yeah, the marches, the A to B marches, as I guess we'd call them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, does it work? It, I mean, I was glad to do it. I was glad to be there. I would do it again if I was there, if I was home. And you have to keep going. You have to You have to keep showing up. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, what else? what else can you do? What else works? This is, well, this is where it comes into it, essentially. Like, in, in terms of the environment, it's totally and utterly failed. We've known the science. People have been protesting. There have been protest movements and activism movements for the last 50 years, trying to raise awareness and trying to change change the, the course of, of direction of where we're going. But it, it hasn't worked since 1990. 60% increase in emissions, 27 percent increase in 2018 alone we are heading for catastrophic climate change on our current trajectory we don't change anything we'll be ending the century on four degrees increase which is it's it's just too catastrophic to even with annihilation complete annihilation and extinction of the human species the world will carry on this is something that that, that i think a lot of people forget or they don't really understand about the environmental movement we're not really saving the world we're saving humans yeah the world will be fine. Yeah, Eventually, yeah. it will work itself out. It will find a way. It always does. It's a magma-filled rock. It They're is pretty tough. It is incredibly tough. And life will carry on. But we won't. Mm. We won't. And a lot of mammals won't. Mm. So that's what we're really fighting for. And that's what we're striving for. And we're striving for a future. And it just it, it just feels like there is, there is a lack of ability to really get that across through a protest movement. Is it such an existential crisis that we can't even handle it? Is, I mean, I don't think that is why. I think it's money. Mm. Well, but... I don't know. As someone who does things at the last minute, is this just a reflection on humanity? I don't know. Yeah. I think to some extent. I think to some extent. I think it's... Um, I think there are so many different factors here. I think it's got a lot to do with the fact that we've handed over so much power over the last 40 years, basically, since Thatcherism... And Reaganism, we've handed so much power to corporations mm. now. They're so much richer. They're so much more powerful than we are. Um, they have so much more persuasion over democracy. I mean, mm. Citizens United decision 2010, American democracy is essentially owned by corporations. Mm. So, you know, th- these things play a massive role in the fact that actually democratic polities are really suffering from a lack of ability to really articulate themselves Mm. i think in britain we have a unique set of problems i think we have 
um, generational problems. Uh, the older generation boomers, for instance, don't have the same concerns as younger generations do. Their concerns mainly revolve around things like lowering tax rates, whereas you know young people revolve around having a future, mm-hmm. um, which seems not to be the concern of the boomers. So. Yeah. Um, these things are really like problematic. We've also got massive issues now with inter- uh, with election interference by hostile powers like Russia, um, which has found that it can essentially leverage um, its ability to affect chaos and create chaos in democratic nations um, to massively outweigh its own ability to have a militaristic and also economic presence in the world. You know, it's very... Actually, economically speaking, militaristic speaking, fucking small nation, but they now have a lot of power. So I think it's a lot of different aspects, but I think ultimately, like, you know, the and this is what uh, Roger Hallam says in his description of why use the civil disobedience model, model. He says, you know, looking at the last 30 years of appalling failure, the reason is, is clear why things have failed. The rich and powerful are making too much money from our present suicidal course, and you cannot overcome such entrenched power by persuasion and information. You can only do it by disruption. Mm-hmm. They do not. They, and no one ever, no one ever, ever, ever gave up power because someone asked. Mm-hmm. It's never happened. Yeah, you don't give up five islands, six yachts. No. And uh, the ability to create your own island where you can sexually abuse girls. No, that's, uh, that was always the clincher Through someone me. Uh, protesting in the street. Yeah. You know, boo-hoo. Yeah. Go take yeah. home your, you know, your... Your sodden rag with your with your tears, your liberal tears. Yeah. Well, that's always something that I always thought was quite brilliant about one of the episodes. I think I've brought this up before. Again, episode of Handmaid's Tale where they have a flashback to Serena Joy. Selena Joy. Serena. Serena Joy being like, I'm going to speak to the council of these dudes, the, my husband and his dudes. And he's like, oh, no, 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 sorry, love. <laughs> I know you wrote it all, but off you pop. And she realises, oh... And she looks back and they're having a conversation to her husband and, and, and another dude. And he's like, we let them get too academic. We let them get too powerful. Mm. As if, and I thought that was such an offensive line and, and brilliantly done because it made me so angry. Because it's like, as if you ever let us, women, ethnic minorities, the oppressed, the poor, as if you ever let anyone do anything, we had to take it. Yeah. And that's where civil dis- uh, disobedience and um, uh, these civil disobedience movements come into play. And I think that's, that is a really important point to sort of like jump up from is um, Extinction Rebellion, especially in terms of its civil disobedience manoeuvrings and civil disobedience um, inspiration comes a lot from the civil rights movements, mm-hmm. um, civil rights movements in the 1960s in the United, in the United States, yeah. um, as well as um, civil rights movements for women. Mm-hmm. Um, so first wave feminism, looking at like the, the history of the suffragettes, um, but also looking at second wave civil disobedience movements as well. Yeah. Um, and trying to understand like what is it about civil disobedience that works and how can we harness that in order to create disruption today that will make governments and also make companies respond to the climate crisis. So what are some of those things that we can do then? What, so when we're saying civil disobedience, particularly if, we, if we're looking at the Extinction Rebellion model, what, what are the things that are proven to have worked? Mm-hmm. The, the first thing is really there is a golden number. So there is a golden number of participation. 
And the golden number of participation is said or um, articulated by Erica Chenoweth in her uh, research into civil disobedience which was really quite groundbreaking at the time there was a huge amount or a huge sort of body of literature and a, a presumption that a change radical change could only be a, really created through violence but she went back and did a huge amount of research in different movements over the course of the 20th century and also before and she found that actually civil disobedience movements and non-violent civil disobedience movements tend to be four times larger through her um, research and also are um, much more successful, mm -hmm. three times more successful. Um, and she cites this golden number of how many people inside of a population you need to get mobilised. And she says you need around about 2 to 3.5% of the population mobilised. Mm -hmm. So we're not talking about millions and millions and millions of people. We're talking about around 2 to 3.5% of the population mobilised. So what does that mean? People actually engaging in these actions, engaging with these actions and supporting these actions. So acting on these actions as well. So for instance, if that means supporting candidates that support these actions, that's part of the mobilization. So you don't need a radically massive number of people to do this, it actually only needs around 3.5% of the population. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the first thing, this is this golden number trying to um, achieve. Um, the next thing is that you should do it in a capital city. Mm -hmm. So go to your capital city because you know, stuff doesn't really happen when mm. you disrupt a provincial town, yeah. it's not really going to make a massive change. The reason being is mass media outlets tend to have their headquarters inside the capital city. It tends to be where the government is located. It also tends to be where you have headquarters of major businesses. So if you cause disruption in the capital city, you're causing disruption to the organs of power. And I think London's such a, an obvious example of that because London, being the capital city of Britain is the ultimate symbol of the stranglehold of power in one place, mm -hmm. in, in one massively disproportionate way, where, yeah, if you were to disrupt Manchester, you'd be like, fuck off. <laughs> like, everyone's just going to work. Yeah. You know, but if you go to London, it's like, well... And I, I, that's not to say there's not extremely poor people in London and people who should not be... Who you know? If we can try and avoid disrupting certain people in London, that we should definitely do that. But it's about getting them on board, right? Mm -hmm. And that's and that's why these movements are bigger. They're bigger because these non-violent movements are four times bigger, as you say. Then yeah. they're bigger because people don't want to get involved in a violent situation. Because getting very violent in a situation, I think, must be of an extremely personal thing where something very specific has pissed you off. And to run with that, it's very difficult to get people well, to be like... It's deeply exclusive. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. deeply exclusive. I remember, for instance, um, a few years back in 2015, I was in was in Paris for the COP21. It was the, the year that the Paris Climate Change Accord got signed. It was a big year and there was a huge protest there. It wasn't as big as it would have been because uh, the Bataclan attacks literally happened two weeks beforehand. Right. Yeah. So the Paris was in a state right. of emergency. Yeah. But um, it was still huge. And um, I remember there were some fierce discussions and I felt so excluded by a lot of discussions that I was having with other activists who were there, who were talking about techniques to get arrested mm. in order to get more people on TV mm -hmm. and in order to kind of enact these things um, in, in, a, in a much more aggressive way in order to get headlines. Yeah. And I felt massively excluded. I was like, I'm not signed up to some kind of black block. Yeah. I'm not part of a, you know, a black block movement that in, encourages violence and... Um, instigates violence with police because they see police as the enemy, they right. see police as the pigs, which is essentially what happened in the um, the G 
the G9 or the G8, mm-hmm. I think, that happened in Hamburg yeah. a few years back. So it just felt very exclusive, and I felt very excluded. Yeah. Um, it didn't end up being violent um, in the end. Uh, there was no need. The, the Parisian police weren't violent with us in the end. But it did feel very much like my decision to consciously say and to say out loud to a group of activists to say, I'm not going to get violent and I'm not going to get arrested. I'm not going to get myself in a position of harm was seen as being very heavily judged. Right. And that was something that really turned me off yeah. that movement in many ways. Yeah. And I think it's something so male. Mm. It's something so exclusionary mm. and what you do and this is what the, the, and a- the research and ableist shows. as well like totally you know, ableist. It, it, you know, so what age you are what gender you are yeah what race you are yeah. let's be yeah, honest exactly let's exactly. be honest like yeah. how are you going to chuck people of color yeah. in the path yeah. Yeah. of a police state or yeah. you know a set of policemen who are going to brutalize them yeah. in such a way as you know the parisian police have an absolutely so, terrible history of, of is racial that, abuse but that's something in extinction rebellion that's been quite interesting hasn't it when there have been moments of arrests they've kind of been like calls mm-hmm. going out to say like who wants to go get arrested yes and you have these quite wonderful scenes of quite elderly people being like oh me yeah like i'm yep. gonna i'm gonna get arrested yeah and um you you are never forced to do anything yeah. against your will and that a call goes out and people kind of are like right it's like right they're clearing this mm-hmm. and of course the idea is to tie up police time mm-hmm. creating a dilemma which is one of the things yes. that you know i spe- i presume we're supposed to do right is you're creating a dilemma in the capital city which throws at roadblocks and tying up police time we all don't want to be tying up police time being arrested as quote-unquote crusties or hippies or lying in front of a boat no one wants for the police times to be used in that way but that's how you have to do it we're we're facing an existential crisis so yeah yeah so i mean if if it's police being tied up for a couple of hours and people not being able to get to work on time for a couple of days in a row i'm sorry but like we have a future to think about we have a climate crisis that is gobbling up decades after decades after decades of our time as a human species on this planet, a bit of disruption now, you are going to reap the rewards of it in the future. So yeah, um, what they found in this, in uh, Erica Chenoweth, in her um, research was that uh, non-violence tends to create much more inclusive um, campaigns. So in terms of gender, age, race, urban, rural, demographics, um, because people feel that, you know, safety in numbers and the maintenance of a non-violent resistance movement is absolutely tantamount. It's the most important. It's rule number one to Extinction Rebellion. Rule number one is maintaining non-violence because as soon as you turn violent, that's when things start to crumble. Because I think, I mean, you had some questions about violence generally. Yeah, I, I just, I, I, you know, we we talked about the Freedom Riders in the US in 1961, um, again, with the civil rights movement and, you know, people demonstrating against uh uh, segregation in the South. Um, if anyone doesn't know that, there's some great little videos actually on YouTube, um, PBS videos that you can see about um, freedom riders and people wanting to bring attention to segregation, particularly in the South, riding on buses from the North to the South, black and white people, atheists, religious, you know, Christians, uh, Jewish people, all sorts of people, and that it became increasingly violent you know increasingly terrifying 
And, you know, people saying, you know, I wasn't necessarily non-violent. I wasn't, I don't think any of us are raised to, you know, an, a natural reaction to violence is to react violently or run away. And running away isn't really an option when your rights are on the line, but people being beaten up and having to just take it. And I did feel like watching it, you saw people, you know, particularly black Americans saying, yeah, I had, you, you know, somewhat, but the thing is I had to allow the TV crews see five white men beating me. And that's how you're going to get support. Mm -hmm. And I find it very frustrating that that's what it fucking takes. Why it reminds me of sexual harassment. We all knew that Harvey Weinstein was a fucking creep. Why did it take so long eventually to get there? Why Why is it always dragging people from a slight position of inconvenience to be like, look at this thing. It's revolting. And also the kind of rate, well, the quite racist toll that that then puts, particularly in the US and the context of racial segregation there. You know, you think about some of the problems of racism, the very, very um, subtle elements of racism in the United States where the dignity, the quote unquote dignity that you have to show as, for example, a black man in America. You know, just look at the look at the current president and look at Barack Obama. For, you know, for, could he for a second show a lack of dignity? So who gets dignity and who gets to be dignified and not dignified? Who gets to be civil and who gets to be uncivil? Yeah. And it, it just it's just frustrating. I know I know that this is pro- the best the best case we have is this civil disobedience. But it just it just further kind of you know. Um, uh, amplifies those those inequalities in society I suppose I think it's definitely like part of a wider conversation to talk about who's the recipient of this messaging and why do they take so much to move their positions Mm -hmm. and I think that's like speaking to a wider conversation about people changing their minds people realizing that they have um you know set views on things and they they do stereotype and they do use you know, perhaps even unconscious biases against people. And that takes a huge amount of re-education in order to, to get there. Mm-hmm. But I think in terms of like, whether this be, this be violent or non-violent, the case for non-violence is so incredibly strong mm-hmm. because violence or violent revolutions, violent uprisings, um, if the Mar- um, African-American people had chosen that path, yeah. would have been slaughtered, yeah. mass slaughtered. Yeah. But instead, what they did is they managed to inspire through things like Selma, the march in Selma, they managed to inspire hundreds of thousands of white Americans to come to their aid and to stand by their side and to march with them. And that was the thing that changed Lyndon Johnson's mind. Mm -hmm. You know, Lyndon Johnson constantly, you know, putting things off and saying, no, now's not the right time. I don't want to use, lose my Southern white voters. Now's not the time. We need to focus on different things. I want to focus on poverty. I don't want to focus on civil rights. You know, constantly throughout the 1960s, frustrating this process and, mm-hmm. you know, pushing it back. And people maybe say he's, he was a racist himself. I don't think that's necessarily true. I think he was an opportunist and I didn't think he saw an opportunity with the civil rights movement. And I think after Selma, he saw an opportunity yeah. with the civil yeah. rights movement, you know, because actually they were taking America with them. Yeah. Showing, like the Freedom Riders, you create the dilemma. Yeah. You create the dilemma, which is look at people doing the simple thing. Yeah. If you accept that black people and white people have the same humanity, yeah. then why shouldn't they be able to sit next to one, each other on a bus? Yeah. Look at, if you don't, if you accept that black people and white people have the same humanity, look at the way they're being treated. 
You know, you can't accept any argument that is not, or you can't accept any argument being not racist Mm -hmm. when you can see something like that. If you accept that those two people have the same humanity, but they can't sit sit next to each other on the bus, you have to say, well, you're a racist. And that was what the that was what the genius of that strategy was because it mm-hmm. created the dilemma, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know. And um, I think that's what civil disobedience does. Non-violent civil disobedience does is it creates a dilemma, because um, violence will will always destroy democracy. Historically speaking, mm-hmm. it's always destroyed democracy, and the relationships with opponents are vital to creating peaceful outcomes. Yeah. Um, to social conflict as Roger Hallam again um, writes and he also writes that you know historically speaking violent uprisings and violence um, revolutions have always led to either authoritarianism or fascism or both yeah, yeah. so I think that that's just another sort of point and about civil disobedience being non-violent is that we th- there is something very frustrating to it especially mm-hmm. when we're facing something like yeah. the crisis but in terms of like these movements they have to be very large yeah, yeah. and if you just narrow it down to a violent group yeah. you're taking out huge people yeah. huge amounts of people who would otherwise yeah. want to be involved for sure yeah. violence just massively turns people off and unless you have like a monopoly on arms you're not going to win mm-hmm. you're just not going to win So those are the those are the tactics of nonviolent disobedience, and you know other other tactics are you know make it go on for days and days on end, and also like create some kind of party atmosphere as well. Yeah, because that that gives people, you know, it's it's confusing. It's mm-hmm. not like people are part of some black block. It's not like people are part of like some kind of disrupting atmosphere that's trying to destroy people's lives. Instead, it's about you know people who are just really trying to raise awareness for these issues and really trying to get something done and trying to cause disruption for a decent end. Um, which is, I think, one of uh, Extinction Rebellion's great policies of having um, de-escalation teams yeah, at each yeah. uh, one of their protest zones. They have de-escalation teams that are trained. Yeah. Um, they come from the psychology profession or they yeah. come from the acting profession or they come from um, performance professions. Or yeah. They come from all different kinds of professions and their job is to de-escalate stressful and potentially mm-hmm. violence-triggering mm. situations. Why aren't they the police? <laughs> <laughs> well, the police actually, like, over the course of the Extinction Rebellion, like, history, have treated Extinction yeah. Rebellion with a lot of For sure. Care, yeah, that was, and that I was, yeah, and I, I agree, and that was not... Um, I'm still thinking about the US. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, um, but, but, you know, and... and um, I've heard about like yeah the, the Extinction Rebellion and they're kind of like yeah you know obviously disrupting traffic in in London yeah you know well shouldn't really be driving in London should we? <laughs> it's like and and but yeah as you say like one or two days of being late yes we're very privileged we're in a very, very privileged position where we're not actually in a place to be disrupted and there should be an awareness of that but. But yeah, as you say, it's just too critical, isn't it? It's too critical a thing. Well, lots of people were disrupted in Berlin. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of people... Uh, I had lots of discussions with people over the course of that two weeks when they did the disruption in Berlin. Yeah. Um, with people who, oh, I was late for this and I was late for that. And, you know, yeah. there was quite some frustrated people, but also people who were like, oh, did you see the Extinction Rebellion on, yeah. the, on the bridge next to the Berliner Dome? Because Extinction Rebellion in Berlin, they lost their... Yeah. Um, 
their points where they were holding. Just like in London, actually, the second the second extinction rebellion wasn't very successful in holding its positions. Mm. First one was successful in holding positions for for ten days, which mm-hmm. was incredible. But it was mostly because the police weren't prepared. Yeah. But um, this time, most of the extinction rebellions across the world weren't successful in holding positions for very long. Um, so what they did instead is they became much more dynamic, moving around from place to place yeah. and causing um, mobile disruption, yeah. uh, which was also very you know yeah. effective as a, as a tactic. Um, but in Berlin, they were sort of moved from place to place and go to different bridges and go to different places. And um, there was a lot of enthusiasm and there was yeah. a lot of excitement and people going and joining for a couple of hours yeah. and then leaving and... I think it will be interesting if we, if the if we do survive. <laughs> uh, we will survive. We will survive. We will survive. Yeah, the end of our lives world. might be might be kind of shit. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that you know all of these problems that the far right tend to really focus on, like mass migration, it's going to quadruple. Yeah. You know, times ten, times fifteen, times twenty. Yeah. When we consider that the global north is going to be affected but more slowly yeah, than yeah. the global south when you're starving people to death <laughs> because you want cheaper consumables yeah. and the ability to drive your car to work and that's starving people to death because they can no longer grow their crops i'm sorry they're gonna come yeah they're gonna come yeah and they're gonna come to your lands that you want to protect from them they're gonna come in mass numbers so the far right should be the most yeah, pro-environmental action because they want to maintain a yeah. white europe but that's not gonna happen yeah after also the... by the way that ship sailed <laughs> get over it um yeah, well, and um i'm not advocating that jesus no Christ. yeah uh, good <laughs> Glad you know, to hear i would it. find it very difficult to stand side by side i think they would probably find it difficult to stand side by side by me but i would do it you yeah. know i would do it if yeah. the far right decided that action on climate change was in fact a solution to their own migration yeah. issues then um then you know we'd stand side by side to against each other and hope that democracy was more sensible than going for a, a, a far right you know nationalist and dickish authoritarian manly well that's it though isn't it that's with some of these things it's who do you have more in common with and in the end of the day i just want to fuck things up right i've got a dick my mates all have dicks oh i thought you said you want to fuck things oh i <laughs> was like civil disobedience well i i <laughs> Can you imagine we got all the way through that? Like, listen, Izzy, it's all lovely gluing yourself to a bank. I want to go and I want to crush skulls. Oh my god! Oh my god! I'd stand side by side. Can you imagine? You? No, I wouldn't. But yeah, no, no just, just quite often. There's just a lot of like. It's just very. And I'm not. I'm not. I'm not saying men, but it is very male. Yeah, it does. Yeah, I mean, like, very, I'm sorry, you don't masculine. have women inciting political movements around. This is what violence. I said about the end of Game of Thrones. Do you know who doesn't burn city to the ground? Burn cities to the ground? Women. Women and men without dicks. Yeah. Traditionally, they're not the ones that burn cities to the ground. Anyway, different episode. <laughs> Did not find it convincing. No, spoiler alert um, after. So I just wanted to end with, you know, quite a, uh, a dark but also maybe inspiring point that I think um, Extinction Rebellion is inspiring the last chance that democracy has to face this problem. Uh, And the reason I say that is because we're running out of time. We've only got, what, 11 years left before runaway climate change takes over, and and that's it. And 
I don't think that democracy will last very much longer. Yeah, I pass that, yeah, for sure. So this civil disobedience is is a very hopeful movement. Extinction Rebellion is an incredibly hopeful movement. It's placing hope in, in democracy. And it's saying that through mass knowledge and mass realisation of the crisis that we are facing, people will act democratically to sort the situation out. And their big demand, their big demand, they have three, tell the truth. So getting the government to tell the truth by declaring a climate and ecological emergency. The second is the government must act now to halt biodiversity and reduce greenhouse gas emissions to net zero by 2025. Currently we're on um, halving it by 2050, which is just not enough. And then uh, thirdly, the government must create a set of citizens' assemblies on which climate change and ecological justice will be debated and solutions will be derived from citizens' assemblies. Um, Citizens' assemblies, I think, is a fodder for another episode. Oh, yeah, for sure. Because they are fascinating and really, really amazing idea, really positive, and I think could be a force in regenerating... Democracy. A huge feel of like um, ability of people to participate in in di- in, in direct democracy. Yeah, well, we saw that with the, re- the repeal of the eighth, didn't we, in Ireland? Yeah, we did not see it in the current. We've not seen it in the current. De- well, we have seen it in the debate, but it doesn't seem to be getting anywhere in the Brexit debate. Um, but po- possibly that could be a way out. <laughs> Creating a civil a civil assembly, assistance assembly would essentially. Well, I mean, part of the civil assembly model is to get experts, mm. oh, sorry, Don't um, like experts them. to come and talk about solutions to massive problems. Mm. So, I mean, imagine Brexit is trying to justify Brexit. Okay, boomer. So, there we go. It always turns around to this generational conflict. Yeah, I just yeah. feel like I'm speaking to my dad. Yeah. I know he doesn't listen. Yeah. But at um, the same time, that's just more broadly doesn't at listen to At the same time, it's been nice to see the elderly getting arrested. <laughs> It is in a nice, nice way, you know, but when really they're like, nice, yeah, yeah, that is that has been quite nice. We have to say that there is a huge amount of participation of lots of boomers yeah. who don't follow yeah. the trend of their generation, exactly. and um, they do genuinely want to help. Yeah. And they're not going to see the destruction, so it's yeah. it's totally just nice of them. Respect. Yeah. So, well, what we're going to do then? I mean, uh, keep 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 on keeping on. Um, do you think uh, it's worth? going down i mean this is an ignorant question if i were to pass through london in the next week would will there be there will be camps there are currently no 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 so yeah they just happen in I like thought, two weeks spans mostly oh, I see. Okay. so this is the third action the third action happened from the 7th of october in in berlin till the 14th and mm-hmm. in london until the 20th yeah and um, actually in London, it sort of started petering out towards the end of the second okay. week because the Met made it illegal to protest in the whole of London. So there won't be another action um, organised for a while. I'm not sure when the next action is actually planned. But if you're interested in this topic and you want to get involved, especially with Extinction Rebellion, we've been speaking a lot about it, then you can go on Extinction Rebellion's website and you can find the next meeting in your area. They have they have meetings everywhere in the UK and also in, in Berlin as well. And um, you can go to either a information session or an onboarding session. The onboarding sessions are there to explain exactly how you could become a part of Extinction Rebellion. For me, as a working mum, it often means 
you know, doing it very, very part-time. Mm-hmm. So not being one of the ones who's going to put myself on the street. I can't afford to get arrested. But, um, you know, putting myself in a situation where I can help out with bringing food to people who want to be arrested or, you know, stuff like that. So I think that's um, that's something that you can do. And there are many, many other ways to get involved in Extinction Rebellion. And just bringing whatever skills that you have is going to be useful. Yeah, in some that's way. it, isn't it? It's, that's, that's the point, isn't it? Is that it's so many different types of people, hopefully diverse with a recognition of how important that is. Yeah, Sorry. I mean, the, most, but, the, but, o- the only thing is don't be violent. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The only thing is don't be violent. Also, um, using many different people's skill sets is always is always amazing mm-hmm. um, in many, many different ways, whether you're not you're creative or just present or, you know, a, a good de-escalation. Um, but, but yeah, that's, that's massively valuable. Um, really good episode of Reasons to be Cheerful mm-hmm. with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. I learned a lot from that episode that you sent to me mm-hmm. um, when there was one woman in particular talking about, you know, the methods that they're using, which was really, really useful. Um, and learning about other di- civil disobedience throughout history. Again, those um, Freedom Riders uh, PBS videos on YouTube, really great. The... Um, uh, the the work of Gandhi, you know, like, <laughs> if you've got time, uh, and um, and but you know things like and that. Selma, are, the film. and Selma, yeah, it's really it's just really inspirational, and you see you see that we have to bring everybody on board. Mm-hmm. We have to bring somebody on board. <laughs> we have to bring a few people on board, and that's really useful anyway. On this on this ship that could be sunken. Exactly. Who knows? Um, so well, that was that, thank you for that. Um, I was uh, so I mean. I wasn't, you know, hugely aware of of a lot of the structure of this. Now I'm glad I do, I'm I'm aware of it. So you know, go out there and and you know, you're gonna come with me to the next onboarding. Oh session. yeah, for sure. Tuesday next week. Oh, is it? Oh, no, I will actually be on a train to Paris, <laughs> <laughs> doing your bit for the environment. Doing my bit for the environment. Taking a um, train on a uh, Possibly never doing it again. Um, but um, <laughs> but yeah. So if you should, you know, you should try and figure out how to be civilly disobedient. It doesn't include getting pulled over. No. Don't think so. No. Or crossing a a red line. Or Jay walking. All right then. All right. All right then. Wow. That's been a pleasure. As usual. Thank you for having me. Well, uh, I enjoyed that. And uh, oh, everyone, have a wonderful Mawafal. And this has been Sistrionics. Sistrionics.